So having money is not all that the hype says it is. Having money, or even more money for that matter, is less so. Take a look at the lives of lottery winners, uh, especially after they won, came into sudden and big riches. Decades of winners and studies about them have led to one conclusion. One's life isn't necessarily improved by having more money. You've heard some of the stories and even some of the horror stories of lottery winners, miseries. Take Jack Whitaker, who won the Virginia lottery in 2002 of, get this, $315 million. In the ensuing years after he won that money, he was hounded by so-called friends and family. He was robbed. And eventually, his granddaughter died under very strange circumstances. By 2007, just five years later, Jack Whitaker's accounts were largely empty. Whitaker's story is not uncommon. Studies show that having more money through the lottery ends up in roughly one half of those who won the big money in the lottery not having any more after so many years, and even a very small percentage even going further and being bankrupt. What the lottery does show, however, is what studies show, is that the lottery reveals people. It reveals that sudden wealth exaggerates what already existed prior to having that wealth. If you were not good with money before you won the lottery, guess what? You're not going to be good after you've won the lottery. Studies do show that happiness spikes right after you win the lottery, in the months thereafter, but they also find that in due time, it comes to the same level of happiness or even sadness prior to winning the lottery after, after some time. In short, having more money doesn't really change your life. It reveals your life. How counterintuitive that seems to us in our age, in a world where obtaining more is really the norm in our culture, is it not? What does Christ have to say about this norm that we live with in the pursuit of more money? Well, we're in this four-part series of Give to the One, where we're talking and looking at what it means to live a generous life. And we're starting out by looking at the very words of Jesus in these first two talks, looking at the parables of Jesus where he talks at length about money. Jesus talked about money a lot, a lot more than we are even comfortable talking. Last week we looked at the parable of the talents where in that parable Jesus teaches some basic truths about how we are, uh, uh, rather God is the true owner as creator of all things, that everything we have really belongs to him first, and that we are stewards who are accountable for what we do with God's created good gifts given to us. Today we're going to look at another parable. We're going to look at a parable of the rich fool. And we're going to look at the problem of what it means to receive more money and how that affects the human heart in many cases. And our emphasis today will be on basically what effect does the fall, sin, have on us 
when we have resources, dare I say, more resources than we anticipate. So, that is our question. How does the fall affect us when we get more stuff, more resources? Where can we go without the grace of God? Well, Luke 12 tells us a really good picture of what this means with two stories about this issue. And uh, one is a real-life story that comes in the first verses, and the next is a parable to get at the problem of sin with more money. And there are three things we're going to shoot for in this, okay? The three are the subtlety of sin with more money, the problems of sin with more money, and the hope for sinners with more money. So, let's dive in. Look at verse 13. So we look at the subtlety of sin in verse 13. And this is what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So here's what's happening. Jesus is traveling around teaching. And as he's teaching and traveling around, uh, people are asking him questions from the crowd very regularly uh, with a lot of Q&A. In this case, he has already talked about money multiple times uh, throughout his talks among the crowds and throughout Judea and Galilee. But out of the blue, this guy shows up and really commands him to do something. And he says, tell my brother to share the inheritance. Now, I will tell you this, a little kind of exegetical clue for those of you who really love your Bible. Anytime in Luke someone uses the word teacher to address Jesus, look out. Look out. There's something behind that in this case. And sure enough, problems happen by this guy making this request. The guy is apparently unhappy. Someone like a parent or a father has died and left behind probably a large sum of money. And more than likely, he has an older brother, a firstborn brother, who is controlling the estate, and he's unhappy about how the money is being handled in that situation. Of course, nobody in this room who's ever had a parent die knows what I'm talking about, right? So he's presenting this as a financially unjust situation. And all of us read it, and if you read it honestly, at first you go, yeah, that is wrong. He should be sharing the goods. But Jesus has a very different response than what we would expect. Jesus responds by saying, Hey man, who made me the judge over you guys or the arbitrator of what you wanted to split up in the estate? In other words, Jesus punts. He doesn't make a judgment here. And why is that? Well, in Jewish culture, you've got to understand that when uh, a, a patriarch died with a lot of resources in his estate... The firstborn son got all of it. All of it. That's the way it worked in that culture. It's not necessarily the way it works in our culture, but that's how it worked in that culture. And it was up to the firstborn son to distribute as much or as little as he wanted in the estate. In other words, it was his right to have those resources. Not only that, that was a reality back then. And more importantly... This is an inappropriate request to be made of Jesus himself. And Jesus is punning because it's not his mission to solve family disputes over money. 
There are other judges in the culture who could take care of that, but it wasn't his job. Even more, even more than that. The issue is that in this inappropriate request, the guy is trying to use Jesus. He is trying to leverage Jesus' authority and fame as a rock star to get what he wants. He's trying to manipulate Jesus, all with regards to money. This is like the prodigal son we find in several chapters later in chapter 15, where he comes to the father and effectively manipulates getting money from the father before the father ever dies. That is what happens in our text today. Jesus is refusing to be used for money. It wasn't his role, and this guy clearly had ulterior motives. Well, what were his motives then? You can't read people's motives very readily and easily, and we shouldn't presume to do so. But Jesus knows all, and he is very clear on what's happening in this dialogue and dynamic with this guy. Look at verse 15 in our text. Jesus sees it plainly. He says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It turns out that Jesus turns to the other people, to the disciples around him, and says, watch out. And watch out for covetousness, more specifically greed. That's another way to describe covetousness. And he says really all kinds of covetousness here. I love David Wenham, a, a, a commentator, says that the Greek in this text is, is a grasping ambition. This kind of give me, give me is what's going on in our text. And Jesus is warning these people because he loves them. He loves them and he wants them to believe Proverbs 4.23, which says, guard your heart for it is the, from it is the wellspring of life. Jesus is warning them, in other words, about bad life math. What's bad life math? Well, bad life math goes like this. The brother here says, uh, the addition of money and possessions equals more happiness, more comfort, more security. In other words, more life. Another way to say that is, more money equals more life. The problem with that is, Jesus says that's not the case. Actually, the more money you have, the more problems you will encounter. To be clear, what Jesus is after here is he is going after the love of money. He's not going after money itself. We can get confused about that sometimes, thinking money itself can be evil and unnecessarily calling it that. Money is a resource, a gift from God. However, the love of money, as 1 Timothy 6 talks about, is a very different thing. And Jesus is warning distinctly against the love of money and the belief that having more yields more life. Let me explain. Augustine said the following. He said, human desire has no rest. And you know that to be true about you. I know it to be true about me. And we can scientifically verify what philosophers and psychologists have confirmed for millennia. There is something in all of us here, including me, 
called the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic treadmill, H-E-D-O-N-I-C, as in hedonism. And the hedonic treadmill goes like this. The hedonic treadmill says that there is no permanent rise in happiness even, as pod, even if positive changes such as a rise in the standard of living happen in our lives. And what happens is this. When you get more money, when you get more money in life and more stuff, say you're here in your life, let's say that's your standard of living, ah, you get a raise, something like that, that's good. That's a blessing from God. Amen. And you go up to this standard of living, what happens is you have a brief happiness moment and then over time, you're not as happy and you want more. So you pursue another rise in standard of living and you keep moving up and it never ends. That is what the hedonic treadmill is all about. And Jesus is really talking about that in our text. He's talking about the hedonic treadmill, uh, the covetousness, which is greed. Now, here's what's interesting about this text. This guy who is complaining to Jesus likely had resources. You know how I know that? Because one, he's complaining about having an inheritance. If you have an inheritance of next to nothing, there's really not a lot to argue about. But if you have an inheritance of a lot, that's when people get really heated in a family. Not only that, Jesus goes on to talk about a parable of a rich man. That's an allusion to Jesus himself. I mean, this guy himself. Fact is, he had resources, he wanted more. He was on the hedonic treadmill of greed. Now, Jesus is so disturbed by this interaction that he wanted others to learn from it. So he takes what he just said about do not think that having more will give you life, and he tells a parable to drive home the point. And look at what he says in this parable, which is telling. He says, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I love this statement. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I like that soul. What do you think? Soul, soul. So he's talking to himself about this. And Jesus teaches here in this parable the depths of the problems with more money. And the story goes like this. There is this businessman, a farmer perhaps, who has a bumper crop. If you were to put it in our time, it might, the analogy might be uh, he has a small business that goes crazy in, 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 its, in its success and does really well. Or it's like the guy who goes in his basement and figures out an internet program like Twitter or, or like Facebook, and it goes nuts in the world on the internet, and he ends up making billions in the process. The resources grow exponentially, is what our text says. Now he has some decisions to make. He's been blessed by God. What is he going to do? So he talks to himself with this very insightful question he says to himself, self, what shall I do for I have no place to put my crops? This is a really important question. And then he says, got it. I, self, will build more or uh, tear down my old barns 
build new ones, nice, shiny, you know, really looking smooth, maybe metal buildings, things like that. And we'll put all the grain and the goods in there. And then he says, this is the end that I'm after. Then I can have ample goods stored up and I can say, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what he's saying there, right? And finally, I can retire early. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is pointing this out in this guy's life. He's trying to create his own club med. Now let's stop for a second. At first glance, this sounds like pretty good business, does it not? Think about it. This is his business plan. It's a pretty conservative one at that. You save up everything and retire early. You enjoy the, the fruit of your hard work and all that you've been. His business has boomed. And you know what we do for guys like this, typically in America, right? We get them to write a book, and they start a speaking network. They start traveling around speaking. We go listen to them. In other words, most of us in America would look at this guy and say, what's the problem? I'm impressed. But here's the, here's the thing. In our text, God is not impressed. Look at Jesus' words in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the, and the things you have prepared, <coughs> whose will they be? Fool is what he calls them. Fool. Now that's a shocker. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and judge of men, says this guy didn't take one thing into account in all his plans, in all his efforts, in all his blessings. Death. Death, the great equalizer. He didn't consider where all this was going relative to God. And Jesus asked that penetrating question, whose stuff is this going to end up being after you're gone? And when the, when the Bible asks a question, you always try to answer it. And the answer is, implicitly with Jesus, it's going to be God's stuff. It's going to end up being God's before it's over with. 1 Timothy 7 says that death is the great equalizer. We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out. Why is Jesus bringing this up? Why is he warning us in what seems to be a really successful American business story? Well, is Jesus saying it's wrong to save money? Nope. Is Jesus saying don't put aside money for something like insurance? Nope. Is Jesus saying success in business is bad? Nope, not at all. Is Jesus saying don't retire, even retire early? No, not necessarily. He's saying be careful how you define life relative to money. He's saying you have to keep an eye on the end game of death and understand that more money is not going to give your soul what you really need, even in the face of death. This guy in our text, sadly, was stuck in a selfish, hedonic treadmill. Did you notice in our text how he was going, I, my, me, soul, self, self? What do you think, self? He was having his own counsel rather than asking of God. 
What do you want to do with these resources, Lord? These, this more money that has been provided. What is your desire, Lord? What's this got to do with us in the room? Well, let's do an exercise together. Let's do an exercise. You don't have to get out of your seats. Don't worry about that. Um, let's say this is a continuum of the rich and the poor in the world. Here are the poor. Here are the rich. All right? The poor, you can envision who they are. The rich, you can envision who they are. Now, imagine where you are on this continuum. All right? Maybe you're down here, up here. What, are your, what is your perception of where you are on the continuum? All right? Now that you've got an idea of where you are on the continuum... Let me tell you that the median income for Union County uh, in households is around $65,000, roughly. You can go online, you can find median income. It's going up and down. It's been going up in recent years. Where do you think that lands in this continuum? You really want to know? Top 1% of the rich in the world. You don't believe me, do you? Do the numbers. We are the richest people in the world. We're in the top 1% of billions of people. I do not say that to make you feel guilty. I say that to help inform you that you and I have the most. Now, college students, you have nothing. <laughs> so you don't count, right? But you're about to make something in a few years when you get out, right? This parable is for us. It's for you and it's for me. It's an uncomfortable truth. But when you have more money coming in, what's your first impulse? Where do you go spiritually with that? This text is calling us to pay attention to the larger question of what God calls us to, and really where our heart is when it, when it comes to money. It's calling us to deal with the reality of greed in our lives. Greed and sin. You want to know what the answer the man was supposed to give to the question, what am I going to do with all this stuff that, I've been, that I have? You want to know what the answer is supposed to be? Jump to the next page, to chapter 12, verse 32 and 33 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In other words, those resources were meant to be put to the poor, to the kingdom. Those resources are meant to take care of God's kingdom needs. You see, greed runs deeper in all of us than we realize. And there are really three problems that greed presents to us and in our text and even beyond our text. The first one is this. Tim Keller says it well in one of his talks. is really good that greed is the only sin that no one thinks they have. If I asked you, what is your real issue as a pastor, with my pastoral authority, I said, okay, let's talk about your sin. I'll tell you mine, but let's talk about yours. I can guarantee you none of you, and even I would bring up greed first. Why? Because none of us thinks we're greedy. 
That's the thing about greed that's so, uh, um, so difficult at times is that it's, it blinds us to the reality of where we are with money, how we really do want more and more and more of our resources. Second real problem that shows up with greed is greed is this, it's like a cancer. It promises the hope of satisfaction if you just have more, but actually feeds itself with dissatisfaction. It feeds itself because it never ends. You know what the result of that is? Entitlement. People start to think, I'm entitled to more. The third aspect and problem with greed is it leads to the bondage of idolatry. Ephesians 5 says covetousness is idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, it's making uh, created things ultimate things. It's making things that are in this world more important than God himself. That's what idolatry is. And as a result, greed leads to no thanksgiving, no generosity, no sense of larger matters, no sense of where this is going eternally. It blinds us. And the result is you end up experiencing spiritual death now as a result of it. Greed will lead you to death. Got a question for you. You know how to capture a monkey? Well, in the Philippines, what they do in the Philippines to capture monkeys, and by the way, in the Philippines they eat monkeys, um, what they do is they'll take a coconut and they'll hollow it out and they'll make a little hole in the coconut just big enough for a monkey to get his hand inside of it. And then inside the coconut, they put this aromatic piece of candy, and, so, and then they, uh, they secure the coconut to the ground with like a chain or a rope or something, and then they leave it out as a trap for the monkeys. And what happens is the monkeys come, they smell the candy, they put their hand down in the coconut, they grab the candy, but they can't get their fist out. And so what happens is the captors come to catch them, to kill them, to eat. And you know what happens with monkeys? Is they will literally hold on to that piece of candy even as they're being clubbed to death and won't let it go. Greed will do that to you. The desire for more above and beyond God himself will take you down this road that you will never, ever, ever find life in and in the process, you'll get clubbed to death in your greed. Jesus is loving us by warning us about this. He's loving us by telling us these things so we can be aware of what goes on in our own hearts with greed. So, let me get back to my chapter. Here we go. So, how are we going to handle this text? How do we respond with an antidote to greed? Well, I would submit to you that there are three attitudes, three actions, and one hope. And these are real brief. Three attitudes, three actions, and one hope. And the real, the, all three of these are born of one thing. When it comes to money, you have to get in a rhythm 
of going the other way. Repentance. When it comes to money and our natural impulses with fear, with anxiety, with dreams that are grand, our tendency needs to go the other way. That's repentance. So, what, are, what does it look like to go the other way with three attitudes, three actions, and one hope? Well, the first attitude is this. We talked about it last week. It's thanksgiving. When God gives you more resources, whatever that looks like, or even the resources you have now, thank Him. Take a moment and say thank you. And I dare you to pray, I don't deserve it. Because if you think before a holy God as a sinner... <laughs> You really don't. I don't. I have to regularly do this with my paycheck. I don't deserve this. Oh, I worked for it, sure. But if it really comes before God, man, I don't deserve anything, any blessings with, with me as a sinner. Second, move towards contentment. That's the second attitude. Contentment. Hebrews 13.4 says, be content with what you have. Contentment is where you actually Focus on God to the point in prayer and reading the word that you are satisfied in your soul with his Holy Spirit being in you so that you can say with Paul, whether I have riches, whether I have nothing, like Philippians 4 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, you like that verse. Most of you have that as a life verse in some cases. That's all about money. Third, not only do you have thanksgiving and contentment, but even go to generosity. Here's where the other way, going the other way is crucial. When you get more money, make the impulse instead of getting something bigger and newer, go to how can I be more generous to the kingdom of God, whatever that looks like. Three actions. Those are the three attitudes. Here are the three actions that come out of Luke 12 itself. The first is this. In verse 21, Jesus gets to the real heart of the matter of what he calls us to be rich towards God. Be rich towards God. That is, treasure God above your financial status. Love him first and be generous because you go to him with thanks. An exercise to try and do in your heart and your mind is sit down in your quiet time with Jesus and spend time thinking through what would it be like if we lost everything today after you go through the shock of that Maybe your house burns down. Maybe something radical happens in your life. But if you lost everything, how would you be without all that stuff in light of God and who he is and what he provides for you historically? I think you'll find you're probably better off than you think. Second, the second action is this. Don't be afraid. You find that in our later verses in Luke chapter 11. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Remember what we talked about last week. Very often when it comes to money, our first impulse is to deal, it, deal with it with fear. But the going the other way is to deal with it in faith. Like, Jesus, you've given the, me, this to me as a gift. Help me to sit on it and think about what we might do with this so that you get more glory. And it might be we take care of our family in some unique way that really needs to happen. It might be giving uh, to a ministry, the church, or whatever. It might be giving it to somebody else who has needs in your family. I don't know. But stopping and pausing and not being afraid about the money is crucial. Third, 
The third action is to answer the question of the rich fool. What shall I do with more money? Do you know the answer to that question? What is your impulse right now? That's what you are called to do, even today, is to go home and think about what your first impulse should be. And I'll tell you what Jesus tells us in the rest of the text. If you go further into Luke 12, here's what he says. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of this will be added unto you. Seek first his rule in your life and your heart with regards to money. Seek first him as your highest value. I got you, Lord, and that's enough in and of itself. And then all the rest of the very basic needs will even be added unto us. In other words, ask God what he wants of the resources that he gives you, even more resources he gives you. Go the other way from selfish ambition, grasping ambition. That's what we're asking you to do in this season at Redeemer. In the One Fund initiative, we, the leadership, will be giving our commitments on May the 17th. And we want you to seek the Lord about how he wants you to give a portion of your resources to this church. We're asking that everyone tithe. Uh, For those who are already tithing, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. You're giving up some things to do that. Thanks be to God that you're doing that. For those of you not tithing, uh, we would encourage you to consider moving in that direction, maybe even taking a leap of faith with Christ and going that way. You're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks with Daryl and even myself. But I do want to make clear to everyone here, in as much as we go through these, these really scary uh, um, parables of judgment that Jesus gives around money, you should know that we do not believe that you are saved by giving money to the church. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. There is nothing you can add to the cross of Christ. But I will say this. What you give to Christ and his kingdom in its many forms reveals where your heart is with him and how much you've received grace and understand how amazing grace really is. That begs the final hope of how we should respond to God's blessings. We will never repent until we have encountered one thing. When it comes to money. Christ and his forgiveness at the cross. All of us here carry some measure of guilt. Around money. How it's been misused or used. And I would tell you. Go to Christ. Go to the one. Who says I love you. I want to forgive you. I gave you my life. Go to the firstborn who owns everything in creation and ask him to have mercy on you and to change your heart and how you handle money. Ask him to take away the fear. Do business with Christ at the cross around your brokenness and sin, your own versions of greed. It is Christ alone who gave himself so that we might have life. And what kept him generous towards us? 
the love of the Father. What kept him generous to death on the cross? He encountered the love of his Father and affection for him. That's going to be the case for you and me. You and I will never give in love until we have been loved first. You can't give what you haven't received, even when it comes to giving from the heart. So, Jesus calls us to seek first his kingdom and his writing ways of the cross. It will change the way that you live, and it will make you rich toward God. In conclusion, for decades, the various universities and hospitals around the nation received huge financial gifts, as large as $30 million each. In 1997, the secret giver was found out. His name was Charles Feeney, one of the co-founders of duty-free shops. If you've ever been in airports or international airports, you see the duty-free shops all around the world. Get this, over a 15-year period, Feeney gave away $600 million and kept over that 15-year period $5 million for himself. When asked why he kept so little for himself amidst that mass of money, you know what he said? He said, I decided one day I simply had enough money. That, my friends, is contentment. That, my friends, is thanksgiving. That's generosity. And that's what the Christian who has tasted the love of Christ at the cross can say with confidence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as sinners today, and we admit to you that on some level, all of us have some degree of greed in our hearts. No one is excused from that, not even me. We pray today, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts in a way that we would see that you are the one who can truly satisfy. That as the teller of this parable, you are redirecting us away from money as a source of life to you as the true source of life. So, Lord Jesus, we confess today our sin, our need, and we confess you as the one who truly can build our hearts up and be generous to us so that we might be generous to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us. As we confess our greediness, let us concentrate on what God has done. God who did not spare even his son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also give us all things? So when we see that cross, we'll willingly take up our cross and follow him as Dean said. Let us worship Jesus, Son of God.
Yeah. 